0: your part in doing the right thing in data. Value, ethics, literacy, and more. Bottom line up front, what are you going to learn about and hear about in this episode? I interviewed Guy Taylor, Director of Data Science and Analytics, as well as the Director of Experimentation at Booking.com. To be clear, though, Guy was only representing his own views in the episode. What are some key takeaways or thoughts from Guy's point of view? Number one, in general, people want to, quote unquote, do the right thing. Look to reward people that do the good ethical things as part of their work product. Number two, always be asking, quote unquote, what is my part in this? Ask for the expectations and try to be clear in your expectations of others. Yes, easier said than done, but we need to get a lot more specific on our expectations of each other. Number three, literacy is not only about an ability to read, but also write. So with data, literacy, or fluency, whatever you want to use, we need to be able to use data, but also create and share it. It's about learning how to share information, not just ones and zeros, and share it well. Number four, there are still major communication gaps in many cases between data producers and consumers. Part of that is just not getting on the same page, really making sure both sides close that gap. Scott note here, as Andrew Pease had said in his episode, both parties should go more than halfway to ensure you've covered everything. Most people think that they've gone more than halfway when they haven't, So, or most people who think that they've gone halfway, they haven't. So you got both sides going 40% of the way and there's a 20% gap in the middle. Number five, if you don't align on expectations, you're far more likely to just have a bad time when it comes to data. Number six, Data people need to stop trying to jump to the tooling to address a challenge first. Get the information necessary. What are people trying to accomplish to create value? Then look to how tools can drive towards capturing that value. Number seven, in tech and especially in data, there's a strong tendency or leaning towards taking action now. Sometimes no action or no action right now is the right answer. Oftentimes, you need more information to make a better decision instead of patching the hole in the bottom of the boat with bread. Number eight, potentially controversial. The way many organizations are trying to leverage data contracts won't lead to significantly better outcomes. There should be technology handling the interface between the producer and consumer, but consumers still need to speak with producers to align on expectations and share their use cases. Number nine, potentially controversial again, there needs to be more accountability and responsibility on data consumers to actively participate in data work to try drive towards the most business value. Far too often, especially now, we're trying to say, oh, consumers are, are the customers and therefore the customer is always right. And that's not at all the case. We need to actually exchange information with each other. Some of that's Guy's view. Some of that's me adding a lot of emphasis on it because this one bothers me a lot. Number 10, ethics in data is always a challenging but interesting issue. Start by creating a set of principles and try to frame potential choices within those principles. Your company's ethics will evolve. Update your practices as they do, you know, try to quote unquote do the right thing and encourage others to check in on past decisions to reevaluate too. And that you don't have to go, Oh, we made a, a mistake historically. You know, we're an unethical company. We're moving towards being more and more ethical, right? It's about improving. Number 11, it's crucial to consider cognitive load. People are most productive when they have time to spend on thinking. Work to give teams, especially those new to owning data, the time to learn, not just the information they should learn. It takes a while for for things to set in, to settle in. Number 12, when people know there are expectations on them, but they don't know what those expectations are, that's unnecessary cognitive load. Look to make expectations more clear on domains about what data ownership means. Number 13, also on data ownership, be very clear about how far it extends. Data producers should own sharing the information, but the consumer has responsibility of ownership too. Scott note here, for me, you need to be clear in every relationship, but it can be the producer owning the data, the insight or the insight in the so what. You just have to be very clear about who owns what. Number 14, in most organizations, teams are overloaded with work and with cognitive load. You can't just easily pull apart the complexity and fix that overnight. And a lot of and in a lot of cases it will be hard to pull that complexity apart at all. Look to prioritize what's going to be the bigger impact instead of trying to do everything. Saying no can be your ultimate productivity tool. Number 15, be like Marie Kondo, you know, does this spark value for your organization? Don't be afraid to shut things down that don't spark value and refurbish your orphan data generating processes that are valuable. Look to say what's actually going to drive value, what is creating value and is not owned in kind of that product type way. Number 16, time for innovation is crucial. It's on leaders to enable their teams to prioritize innovation and experimentation you know, when you think about agile, a lot of people skip out on innovation and experimentation time. That's a bad policy. That's personal note there. Finally, number 17, always be delivering value. Look to use incremental value delivery methods. How do you break down a big potential project and deliver over time instead of the high risk way of a big project of delivering it all at the end? Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode I've got guy Taylor here who's the director of data science and analytics as well as the director of experimentation at booking.com to be clear though he's only representing his own views he's not representing those of the company and what we're going to talk about here is you know a, a lot we're going to touch on a lot of different things but a lot of it kind of centers around empathy <laughs> I think this is something that guy and I really when we were talking about uh, setting up this episode, there's just a lot of uh, things that we've got to have empathy for. So, you know, we're going to talk about data literacy and how do we actually get to literacy? How do we how do we think about even ethics as part of that conversation? Um, how do we think about capacity and cognitive load when doing transformation? Again, one thing I talk about a lot is that this isn't a, a zero or a one. This is a journey. So. You can't just all of a sudden say, you now own all of this stuff. You have to learn how to do this, you know, tomorrow or anything like that. And part of that as well is kind of data ownership. It's maturity levels. You can't just hand things over to to, uh, kind of reflexively or just shove it. And then like just in general, especially with the experimentation role that that guy's got, the ability to set ourselves up to be flexible. And how do we think about things at that micro level? How do we think about that fail fast? And how do we think about setting ourselves up to continuously improve instead of kind of what has been something that's been a problem in so many data projects historically has been either it fails or it succeeds instead of how do we keep uh, improving, improving, improving until we get to more and more value. So uh, but before we get into that, Guy, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we'll jump into
1: the conversation at hand. Absolutely. I'd love to. So uh, my name is Guy Taylor, as you mentioned. I'm, uh, I'm a South African. I've been in the Netherlands and with Booking.com for the last uh, three years uh, doing data science and data type things. I'm, I'm old tooth. I've been in the data game when data engineering, data science and data things were all kind of collapsed under the same, same roof. Uh, and prior to being at booking, I've been in the financial services uh, business uh, and spent a lot of time in, in finance generally, which has been a lot of fun.
0: Well, that, that I think provides you a little bit different of, a of a, okay, I have to really comply with regulatory, but also like that kind of background in financial services, I think is, is interesting and helpful. But wh- why don't we start with that kind of concept around data literacy or data fluency? I know some people like to call it one thing or the other. I'm starting to kind of more go towards fluency instead of it's a zero or a one of literate or illiterate versus <laughs> levels and things like that. But- one thing that, that's that been kind of ringing through a lot of these conversations is a lot of domains aren't capable of owning their data. So if we just try and hand it over to them, you know, they're not at that level. How do we start to think about that producer level uh, data fluency? And do you think about it at the individual within the domain level? Or do you think about it as that, that domain level and that if you embed people into it, that's good enough people that are data fluent and then they can figure out like what everybody has to do. Like what, what are your thoughts there and what are you seeing from kind of interacting with people there?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's there's a lot. So just stepping back and I, I, I realized, I, I, huh, I realized about two years back that my mental model around data literacy had changed quite a lot. The thing that I realized is that when we talk about literacy, what we're talking about is not just the ability to read, but also the ability to write. And actually it's that exchange of meaning, that exchange of information between two parties that uh, is what really encompasses literacy. I love the shift in paradigm from literacy to fluency as ability to kind of get past the, you know, this is a word, this is a sentence, this is a paragraph, this is a work of Shakespeare. Um, But going back to first principles to me is always there's a contract and a relationship around the things that we're trying to communicate and the things that we're trying to communicate to each other, which really is um, what data and the transfer of data to, to analytics is about. Oh, that was very abstract. And I suppose it could kind of stay quite abstract. You asked some very concrete questions. Can I dive back into those?
0: Yes, go ahead. I
1: think that's could you good. remind me what they were?
0: So like, well, and, and what you just said there as well is is something that I've been talking about is that we're, we're not doing data for the sake of data. We're doing data to exchange information and we're encapsulating it with data, with the metadata. But like, when we think about the fluency of a domain, right? We're thinking about like within the data mesh concept or anything like that, when we're thinking about the fluency of a domain, are we thinking like, where are you seeing it work better for a domain outcome or anything like that? Is it that you're embedding people that are fluent in the domain and just going domain, you've now got capabilities within yours, you know, kind of that quote unquote resources, or is it about upskilling the people in the domain to handle it themselves instead of trying to add those? Or is it both? Like, what, what are you seeing that's actually working?
1: Yeah. So what I'm seeing is a little bit of both. So the embedding that I'm doing is with the express purpose of doing education, making sure that we are having the conversations around what things mean, uh, what our expectations of those things are. I, and a lot of that stuff's not, you know, somebody walking into a room and go, sitting down going, well, guys, today we're going to discuss the meaning of these metrics. It's, there's a lot of conversation around what what actually are your expectations of these things, and that obvious, often needs to be um, influenced out. So the embedding is there to do those things, get the information, start the communication going, because I what I'm finding is that that's where the, the primary gap is, is the gap in the conversation between consumers and producers and then start teaching producers how to manage a lot of that communication for themselves, so that eventually those things can kind of be pulled apart. My expectation, my North Star, is that the muscle is built into the teams that are producing the, the data, um, and, and you've kind of got decentralized governance, if you will. Uh, but that's not a, you know, one-day journey. There's there's a lot of work that needs to go into that stuff in order to get it right. So. Having a guide to walk with them until they're strong enough to walk alone, if you want to mix a couple of metaphors together, I think is a, a way to put it.
0: Yeah, I think that, that communication gap and making the implicit explicit, right? Where um, you know, I was just talking with you about my, uh, I'm, I'm trying to move over to the Netherlands and the legal process. And the, my lawyers told me, everything was turnkey and so i thought all of these things were handled and then i find out something isn't so it's you know putting a lot of things at risk and so it's where how do you get that that communication where everybody's on the same page and that you're encouraging more communication exchange and making sure that you're you're dotting the i's and crossing the t's but that you're using the same language in dotting the i's and crossing the t's and that you're not, you know, oh, okay, this this uh, language or whatever doesn't dot their i's or cross their t's or wh- whatever weird analogy you want to use there. But I'm finding that we just don't have enough of these. Let's really get down to what are we trying to accomplish. And then we can start to work on the solutioning. But data people often try and jump to the solutioning but the thing that's been historical is that the producers and the consumers are used to answering questions instead of saying here's what what I'm trying to do like how can we get to that accomplishment they're used to to the data people not being able to understand or not caring about in a lot of cases the the actual specifics of the business so is a lot of this as well that the embedded that the data people are, are getting more fluent in, in the business, or is it more just like, Hey, here's where things go wrong. Like what, what are you seeing kind of, I, I know that's a big, big, broad question, but like, Oh, it's
1: super interesting. I, 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 I think, I think some of this goes on to, to empathy. I, when you say that data people jump to, to solutions, I think my general experience is that people jump to tools and, um, and I think that there are a series of conversations that need to happen before you jump to the, the tool level. Like, you know, am I understanding your expectation correctly? You know, somebody says, hey, the data, the data is bad, which is a, you know, a, a common mantra. Cool. What does that mean? Does that mean it is incorrect? Does that mean it has arrived late? Does that mean it is empty? Like, how do you know it's wrong? Is it wrong because you think it's different to what you think it should be? Um, you know, there are a bunch of measures in there which are really hard to to jump to when somebody is, you know, quietly throwing a tantrum and trying to escalate this very, very quickly because it's really important to them. I mean, we learn how to do a bunch of this stuff outside of our work lives when we go, okay, cool, slow down. What do you mean? You know, let, let's let's have a conversation around, you know, not what you're feeling because feelings generally aren't that, that welcome in the workplace, which I think is a different conversation that I'd love to have at some stage. Um, but, you know what are you experiencing? What are you seeing? How do we how do we make sure that what you're getting is what is needed while also managing this process over here? And then that's not a tooling conversation at all. That's an expectations conversation out the gate. Um, but yeah, having those conversations at the right level is also difficult. And then doing it with technologists, and this is just my opinion, doing it with technologists is also quite difficult because the world of delivery tends to happen in a, well, let me change something. Let me do something. And action may not be the best approach right then. But those are my assumptions and opinions. Like,
0: yeah, I really like that. And, and I like especially that action might not be the best solution. It might be, okay, we're in a spot where we aren't sure we need to collect more information. Like we need to just kind of let this sit and it's not great. Like we have to sit in, in, you know, the rain puddle or whatever, but if we were, we're in the driest spot that we can be right now. So we now have to go and and wait for, for those things. And, um, and this comes up a lot, I think in the data contracts conversation where I started to say data contracts are the mechanism and there is a lot of expectation setting and, and tools and stuff, but there's a data sharing agreement that should be wrapped around that that's the relationship. And the contract is the actual execution mechanism, the tracking mechanism that this, this means this, and this is the, the sets around it. But like we need to be focused on what are we trying to do? And okay, I understand what you're actually trying to achieve. Hey, this data that we've got, like, you know, we started, uh, tracking something different. And we think it would actually be more, more helpful than what you're using, but you don't know that it exists. So let's if I know what you're actually trying to accomplish, I can better help you accomplish that instead of just what data do you want? And that you tell me you have to to say, does this thing exist?
1: Yeah. The data contracts conversation is super interesting and so on right. Because this is now the technology layer of that high level uh conversation that we're trying to have. And I think what I see out the gate is naive implementations based on, hey guys, this is what we're publishing. This is what you should expect from us. And really what you're trying to get to is a contract between those two parties. I say what you're trying to get to. I think what is useful in some patterns is a contract between two parties where consumers are announcing what they're using and what they're using it for to validate that that is the correct thing to be doing, as well as producers going, hey, this is what we're publishing, this is what they're for. And again, the technology is just the technology. The interface is just the interface. That doesn't happen without having the conversations around, this is what we are serving down the value chain. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I really get silent consumers and data contract stuff of somebody just coming and starting to consume without ever building the relationship and, and transferring yeah. that. It's
1: I've, I've been naughty in the past. I, I, I kind of picked up a big stick and went banging on producers. I, you naughty producers, like you need to, to do better. And I, I forgot about a whole bunch of accountability and responsibility that lay in, in, in my own hands as a consumer to to kind of do better myself. And I think that the big learning is, I mean, this is obviously the big learning. The big learning is always, what is your part in this? Um, and then kind of try and take accountability for it. I think we might have found the
0: episode title of, what is your part in this? Like doing data at, at scale, but with empathy. Um, so, you know, I wanted to talk about as well, the, the ethics angle of this, right? As people are getting more and more fluent, you're, you're kind of, it's that whole thing of, I'm getting you too dangerous right as you're more and more capable with data you might be able to do more and more things but we need to make sure that we're doing it in the right way and and we're thinking about those those ethical approaches when you're you know bringing these these domains up to speed when you're getting them to a higher fluency level is you know how are you actually handling the ethics and that it's not just the you know ai bot- bias model it's like should we be doing this? Like, yes, this may have value. I think I, I was listening to a podcast and somebody was saying that um, in the UK, uh, one of the train services looked at how your your battery life uh, on your phone and would charge you higher if your battery life was much lower because you were more desperate. So they they had surge-based pricing on that because they could extract more money, but it's at least in my book absolutely completely and utterly unethical and and kind of horrid to be doing that type of thing so like how do you think about having that conversation when you're you're kind of teaching these people hey we're opening up what you can do but you should really always be thinking about <laughs> what should you do and it, would you like this done to you and should i talk to other people and make sure that this isn't going over bounds
1: I think this is a really interesting and really challenging uh, conversation. So, I mean, the, the first thing is always, you know, what are the, what are the frameworks that we have already pre, pre-signed pre up for socially? So we've got regulation as a social contract. Uh, that is something that we have to do because we have chosen to live in the society that we live in. So there, there are those pieces out the gate. Then there are the pieces of, okay, well... Sorry, my, my brain just went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole went down is trying to figure out where, where the responsibility sits on the ethical part of how do we do what is right. Um, what is right is a blurry thing. And I, I think I, I think if you ask different people what is right, they will give you different answers. But if you ask people if they were ethical, Ninety-five percent of the time, you're going to get a, a a clear yes. The the I think that the easiest way to manage this is simply through principles that we agree on on how we should be doing things around here. These are the principles of, you know, a domain. They're principles of product. They're principles of um, what do we choose to do with with data? What do we choose to do uh, with Delivery. And I think a useful construct to have in place is also to be okay to say, hey, that used to be okay, but it's actually not. We've learned from this, and so we need to update our belief systems. Uh, and we now need to think about doing it a little bit differently. I think the challenge is if you try and do all things. I'm 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 trying to be careful because I (laughs) don't want to get cancelled on this. (laughs) But if you try and do all the things right all the time, you you're gonna you're gonna get it wrong. You're gonna get it wrong, and you need to be okay with going. Hey, like we did badly. Let's update and and figure it out. Do your best, and then when you slip up, do better. You know.
0: Yeah. There. There was. I mean, that kind of plays into something that's been coming up a little bit more about just in general, not even ethics related, but the kind of fear of finding out, right, where you find uh, these execs that are not embracing using data because they're worried that their past decisions will be relitigated, right? Instead of, hey, this isn't what we should be doing now, let's change it. It's, it's, hey, you know, we got into this market and it wasn't the right decision. Like, and so we have to exit the market. Well, that person made their their call on what information they had at the time instead of, hey, we now have new information that says that this isn't a a great market to be in. So we have to exit this market. You know, okay, that's this other person just didn't do their job. And that's kind of that same thing of, I, I like what you said of, I mean, this is kind of, you know, uh, nations coming to grips with their kind of horrible pasts and, you know, especially a lot of European nations and things like that the U S especially as well of like, what have we done in the past? And like that, that we don't try to sweep that under the rug, but that it's like, Hey, we can't really change the past. So let's be better in the future and make it so that we can actually, um, do that. And that, that, you know, we're going to have things that are that happen that are unethical, but we want to make sure that they're not wildly unethical, and that we are thinking through and going, should we be doing this? And let's actually ask the question instead of, does this generate value for us? It's like, does does that ethics actually have a value? And and how do you think about that? And if you're only ultra focused on value, you're going to lose the ethical people, <laughs> and your ethics is going to continually fall apart.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very lucky in the organization I work in, one of our values is do the right thing. And that really helps steer the questions around, you know, what products we make, what data we use, what, how we use it, all those things are are, are built in. And further to that, it's also a culture which has been built on feedback, and the ability to assess the things that we've done Um, in a safe manner. You know, that escalation takes place and it's like, okay, well, that happened. You know, let's look at that. Let's try and learn from that. I I think these are really constructive ways of looking at data and and kind of moving it into the future.
0: Yeah, and... When you're having these conversations, are you finding, I mean, it it is different for every organization, but are you finding that most people will lean into this conversation or are you having, you know, and is it more on the business side or more on the data side that people, where you think that, that people might have less traction around this? Cause I want to prepare people for kind of, if they're going to lean into this ethics conversation.
1: I mean, I think I think that if you speak to people, this is a belief, Scott, so let, let, let me be clear. I'm making this up in my head. This is my belief in the world, which will probably tell you more about me than it will tell you about society. But I, I think if you speak to people on a person-to-person basis, generally they will tell, They will lean into the right thing to do. They want to do the right thing by by other people. Um, you know, I, I think, so I, I have... Eaten, I have, in my career, not seen a situation where somebody has gone to malice. I'm also aware that there's a that there's a bias there. Like that I, that's my data point, but um, I, I I believe that people are mostly ethical.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I kind of I I feel the same way and that there's most people are mostly ethical and there's lapses in judgment and things like that. And we can't necessarily be like everybody has to be perfect all the time, but that we can all work with each other to to be better and create those principles and those mechanisms to check in with each other.
1: Right. So this is this is absolutely where I wanted to go next, which is that I think it's wonderful to say that most people are ethical. And sometimes what's the, what's that phase, the banality of evil, uh, you know, there is really bad stuff that happens and sometimes it's a bad actor and sometimes it's, you know, bad systems, uh, there is bad stuff that happens and creating systems and processes where you can have automated monitoring, you know, you are checking on your adherence to the principles that you hold the regulations that you are checked by that stuff's super important. So making sure that people understand what the um, what the downsides—not the word I'm looking for—but what the downsides of the things that they're doing are, so that they can make you know useful risk uh, risk adjusted decisions, I I think is super important. You know, let's have intellectually honest conversations, and you know, let's be clear on what could happen. Yeah, and that
0: that that ethics is a business risk, not just from a you know headline standpoint but losing people and things like that i think the more that we start to have those conversations and be realistic you know i mean facebook or meta or whatever is having a lot of problems keeping anybody you know and they also did all the layoffs and stuff but like they're having problems with keeping anybody because they keep doing unethical things and so and they keep providing lip service to ethics and then doing unethical things and so People that are in that position go, okay, I'm, I'm just going to leave because I can't, I can't sit with myself, I can't be okay with this, and so they lose a lot of good people. So, so I, I think this also kind of transitions somewhat well into the, the the questions about cognitive load and and that type of thing about like how do we think about teaching our people, how do we think about getting people to really think through. What are we doing and why? Like, what what is the right thing to do from an actual action standpoint? What is right from a you know an ethics standpoint? But like, what when we're starting to move into doing transformation, especially something that somebody hasn't ever done before? I don't know if you've ever. Uh, tried to estimate the amount of work for a project when you've never done anything quite like this before and you're just like, you're wildly, wildly off. I mean, we all know humans are bad at, at estimation in general, but like, how do we think about reserving space for cognitive load, reserving space for that kind of, I mean, you're the director of experimentation, that time to experiment and that we don't overload our people because if we're upskilling people, if we're increasing their fluency... (laughs) That 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 takes some of their capacity, not just the work hours, but their their mental capacity.
1: My belief is is that people do their best work when they have carved out the time to think, when they've slowed down, when there is, you know, there are a couple of things that that pulled me here. Cal Newport's Deep Work was a kind of life-changing book for me when it came out. It came out several years back. Uh, Rich Hickey did a um, a talk called Hammock-Driven Development, uh, which, when I saw, very hands-on, keyboardy, uh, was you know really important for me to 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 listen to. Uh, I I realised only after my my 20s that thinking things through and taking the space to figure out what needed to happen uh, was super important. Now, I'm also a hypocrite, because my calendar on a day to day basis is literally back to back with meetings. And I know that when I clear out the time to actually focus and just step back, away from those things, then my productivity goes through the roof. Now, the same thing that is true for me, because we're all human, is exactly true for everybody on the team. And getting getting the space to think through problems, to not just step in and go, OK, cool, yes, bad data, let's hit the keyboard, uh, I think is is super important. How you do that with expectations is really difficult. You're going to disappoint somebody. You know, you're going to disappoint your boss, which is hard because he's your boss or she's your boss. You're going to disappoint your stakeholder because they're upset with you and they're trying to get things done quickly. You're going to disappoint your partner because they have expectations of you afterward. Like at some point, this prioritization stack has to give, but cognitive load is a super, super real thing. And by getting to a place where we are able to focus on single threads and focus on simplicity or get to simplicity, rather than having to deal with all the different things that we normally have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, I think, that's the, I think that is the golden key. And, and I notice that I have the ability to either step to this, get it, or be fine for a couple of things, and then I'll step away from it. Just yesterday, I had carved out some time to think. And I hadn't used and I didn't use it properly, because I've just come off of a whole bunch of um, fire putting outing, which is not good English. Uh, but I I've put out fires for like the last week. And then I had yesterday, and my brain was looking for something to do that wasn't in that kind of calm space where it's just like, let me let me think. And I was like, I'm not adding value I'm not adding value like what am i doing here I, I just like I need something must be on fire let me let me go start a fire so I can put it out um I'm not sure to answered your question or any way manner or form but i yeah
0: no I, well i think it it sets up into the the question of like how you know one yes we need to to provide that space for ourselves and for others we need to think about that in in our team but like How are you prioritizing that with others, right? Like, how are you trying to ensure or, you know, if you're successful in ensuring that, that, hey, we're asking this team to now own their data, right? We are asking them to do something incremental. So that is not just additional work we yeah. have to rework prioritization, rework capabilities. We can't just say, I now expect you to do this additional thing without that, like, hey, like something is probably going to fall from this. And let's talk about prioritization.
1: It's it, it, it's really hard. And I can give clear examples of where I've done this wrong and what I would do instead in the future. I mean, one of the things that, that I've, I've, done is roll out this kind of this ownership. Uh, teams get to know what get to know who the responsible people are. but then there's this open question of like what does it actually mean? What is expected of me on a day-to-day basis? And when that doesn't involve doing something necessarily, that leaves an open thread to say, okay well, I still don't know, but there are still expectations of me. Now I need to go manage those expectations that I don't have, which is, that's cognitive load, right? That's emotional load, where um, somebody's sitting there going, uh, like, I should be doing something else, but I now I need to go figure out this other thing. Um, so getting super crisp and clarion around what expectations look like and what they are Uh, When we talk about incremental budget, not expecting, I can't go and expect budget out of something that's not given until that budget's released from people that own that budget. I mean, one of the things I find myself saying, which is to manage the difference between this is more work and this is a change in the way that we're doing things. Um, or a change in the way that you work. I realize that's just a framing exercise, uh, but the framing of that's different. You know, one is this is going. To, one is the expectations are going to take an extra two hours of my day. The other is okay. Well, I just need to be a little bit more aware during my day that there's this other thing. So it, it's you know it's the same chunks of time. They're just sliced out differently.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that. It's it's uh, it's useful if you can have that person that partners with you to put that into perspective and have that like hey I know that you're trying to do these fifteen things but let's just focus on getting two of these done well and the other thirteen you can talk about hey I don't have time to focus on these right now here's why I've got that prioritization like um, I think it was uh, Rada Rishani that was talking about um, when you're working around, uh, you know, a new data project related, you know, whether that's for a data product or whatever, you know, I know project can be a, a bad word in data, but, you know, let's just say that, that we're working to, to get this thing to um, actually implementation, having the communication and going, Hey, your prioritizations around this have changed. Therefore this is why this is extending or my pri, This is not highest priority for me. And that's not my choice. That's the organizational choice, right? I don't get to set my priority on that. Um, you know, you don't have that luxury as much in, the, in your personal life as, uh, but uh, in the work life, a lot of us have that of like, I can't make this my number one priority because I don't have. It doesn't have the the need. I get that this is causing you pain, but but I, I think a lot of what you're talking about, though. How do we think about how much how difficult is it for people to learn to do data well? Or, you know, how, how deeply do they have to learn to do this? Like how do we get the people that would set those
1: prioritizations for them to understand that? Yeah, but this is super interesting because going back a couple of conversations, I, I think people do want to do the right thing. My experience is that people do want to do the right thing in many cases, they just don't necessarily understand the pain that is being caused somewhere downstream or somewhere upstream or through a regulatory process. You know, if, if, if we talk to people on a day-to-day basis, they are focusing on this like really important thing that needs to get done by the end of the day. Uh, and it's by pulling them out of that context and having those conversations with them so that they can get the perspective of like, where the value for this actually comes at the end of the day, uh, that that this starts to land. And this is not a fast process. This is, you know, slowly, incrementally, slowly having conversations with people to understand that they are in fact providing data downstream to a different place. They are in fact accountable for what happens to those people at the end of the day. They're accountable for how numbers are read, Uh, how, you know, in terrible situations, how commissions are paid out, you know, they are affecting people's lives in one way or another. Now, look, I'm being very dramatic. Um, But it's real, it's truthful, you know, and getting people to come with you on the journey to say, Oh, actually, this thing here affects that thing over there. I think there's a lot of power in that. Again, it's a human thing.
0: Well, you, I mean, you, you talked about earlier, what are we doing this for, right? I think that flows through a lot of the, you know, ethics conversation and this conversation. And so much of, of data has been, I get it, we need to produce data versus, hey, this is the use case and this is the value it provides. Here's why, here's what happens if this goes awry, but that that Consumer also goes. Let's talk about compromises. What's going to drive the most value so that I understand that? Hey, I'm I'm trying to put. You know, you need to have ninety nine percent or you know five nines of of uh, accuracy, five nines of completeness, and you know I need it in millisecond latency, and I need it. You know, and it's just like okay, you're just that's a half. You know, yeah. half a billion dollar system or something insane like that, right? No. Like, yeah, just ha uh-uh, no. But that you um, have those conversations, and, and you start to say, or, or like this is the thing with um, the silent consumers, where I get really frustrated in the data contracts conversation is, what if your initial consumer for a project or or you know a product at that contract level, what if your initial one goes away? Your SLAs of the consumers that are left, they might have different. Sets of things that they would prefer, or you might have a relaxing of your SLA and and this thing that's been really tough or that's really expensive. All of a sudden you're like, oh, I can, I can, you know, not focus on this being a, you know, one minute uh, latency SLA. There, people are okay with it being a, a once a day SLA. So, you know, I'm just going to put it at 12 hours just to make sure that we're, we're good or whatever, but I just saved us a bunch of time and headaches and all of this stuff. So that, that conversation around like being explicit and actually having empathy with both sides to tell them, Hey, this is something that has changed. Yeah. Right. I I try and have that with the community as well as here's something that I'm learning or here's something that's been incremental, because I think it's really important to think through, you know, if I see something, say something and that's not only for bad, that's for good. And like what, or I, I think about this when I introduce people to each other, I'm like, I think you would get along well with this person. And I think it would be beneficial for both of you to talk. Right. And you think of, or, you know, even doing this podcast and things, you know, I, I know I do chase some people down a little bit, but a lot of times it's like, is this going to be fun for you? And then I also as a host try and make it fun because otherwise, why would you do it? It has to be mutually beneficial. So like having those conversations and getting explicit about what does this mean for me? Like you're doing this thing. I sincerely appreciate it. I'm going to make sure you get credit for the stuff, the work that you're doing. And I'm going to care enough about you to share why i need this in this way and then like let's have a legitimate conversation let's get that implicit to be explicit
1: yeah i i love that model i love that model it also it also sits a little uncomfortably with me because it's it doesn't it doesn't mirror what i see from teams on a day-to-day basis which is that they are Overloaded with work, overloaded with expectations. We talk about the cognitive load thing. You know, teams are working and trying to do their best. Uh, and you know, the truth is, is that as as much as as much as Elon thinks that he can run Twitter at like ten percent of of his crew, there is complexity in these systems, and you know, trying to tear apart the complexity is is hard. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do think that a lot of teams are are under the pump quite a lot. And going back to the conversations around, okay, look, you know, hey, teams manager, like how do we prioritize this stuff together? And we go back to the conversation the, the conversation conversation, which which I think I'm gonna get on a t-shirt now. Um, But having very clear amounts of how this hits, how how do we protect our people, how we protect our teams from that cognitive load is super important. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. You don't have a magic wand you can wave to help people on this?
1: I I think it's out of magic. Like, I think it's a stick (laughs) now. (laughs) It's just... So so you've just been walking around and waving a stick at people? (laughs) I I think I said that earlier, a very big stick. I go around thumping producers... (laughs) <laughs> Didn't work. Yeah.
0: So I think a lot of this uh, transitions well into that, that data ownership conversation, because, you know, we do understand there's cognitive load, but like, what, what are the responsibilities that you think that aren't getting communicated very well? when we're talking to new like what you know put yourself in their shoes and think about you know your own shoes and and be like what should i be communicating more but like where where do you see them constantly not quite getting it and where
1: should we be more explicit yeah i i'm old right so I, I grew up in this era where, you know, it. I didn't grow up in the era where it was called machine information systems or whatever it was. But I grew up in a time where data and code were, you know, quite tightly coupled. Uh, and, you know, anything that was uh, algorithmic was used to transform data and to produce data. Uh, and what I think I've seen through the rise of Hadoop, NoSQL systems, is this kind of decoupling of understanding of what data is and the modeling of data. Uh, And I think what I see today mostly is a lack of respect for the data that you are actively producing and going, this is what this thing means. This is what this thing is. So for me, first step of ownership is to go, yes, I have created this thing. It's not just a... Um, it's not just a function that is affecting a thing and then that thing goes away. It's a, it's an artifact. The artifact that is produced needs to be owned by somebody because it needs TLC. It needs love, attention. It needs to be handled properly, uh, all those things. So ownership for me is point one, just going, that's mine. I, I'm going to take care of that. And then point two is when the consumer comes and said, well, actually your artifact is something of value that I'd like to extract value of to continue to make sure that that value is being produced for uh, that consumer. I think those, I mean, it's, it's probably, I'm probably making it really, really simple, uh, but I do think it is that simple. And then to make sure that that's done within the frameworks of you know regulation, within the frameworks of the policies of the company, within the frameworks of, uh, but, Ownership is that simple.
0: How do you think you actually hand that over to somebody that's not used to doing it? And, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the pre-call, but about the how far does that ownership extend, right? Like, um, Marisa Fish helped me kind of develop this this thought framework about it. Of Are we giving people the data? Are we giving people the data and the insight? Are we giving people the data, the insight, and the so what? And most of the time, the consumer expects the so what. And most of the time, people expect to deliver the data. So nobody's even generating the insight. And definitely, so there's just that disconnect. Like, how how do you
1: get people to be capable of owning? Yeah, so I, I think, okay, so there are two things. You asked two questions in that. I don't think, what I was talking about is not ownership of, the so what? I think that the value change kind of stacks on top of itself. So a person produces the data. That data then gets put into a figurative machine uh, where it's owned until it is transformed or some kind of question or transformation is applied onto it. At which point the previous owner's release of their ownership duty. So I only see the ownership needing to take place until such point where that data is transformed or act- is put into something that changes it. Um, so the so what needs to be owned by the person that can extract that me- the meaning of that transformation. And then the transformation has to be owned by a metric owner or uh, a person who's got a business sense. So th- there is ownership across uh, the value chain here. Um, and there's a requirement to help the person who owns the data understands that. Please remind me of your first question.
0: So like, how do we get people to actually be capable of owning data? Right. We talked about this a little bit with the, the literacy and the, the, you know, fluency and, and, ethical conversations as well and cognitive load but like one thing that a lot of people are struggling with right now is when they're trying to hand they're trying to get domains to own things right especially data mashes first principle of data mashes domain-based data ownership but a lot of people are trying to shove this ownership over instead of kind of co-own or take people's hands and go like, we are asking you to own further down that value chain. Cause it was the data came out of my system. I don't own the transformation. I don't own the data after it's been transformed. I own the thing up until the pipeline. And then the pipeline does all the transformations, but I don't have to own that. So now we're trying to figure out how do we actually work with these, you know, you're, you're, you're working in a lot of cases with these different domains to actually take over ownership. Would you have any tips or tricks or things that you would tell people if they're saying we're struggling with this, like what would you kind of start them off with? What, what, you know, where are the pitfalls or what are the things that are working well from
1: that standpoint? I mean, the. The pitfalls are clear. I mean, the pitfalls are the things that you've you just highlighted. Uh, people stepping away from ownership, people disagreeing on ownership. I mean, that, that It gets really complicated. Where things work well are when the enterprise data model uh, connects with the organizational model, uh, connects with people who go, yep, that's part of what my system does. I don't think I've got a magic wand here, Scott. I, I, I This goes back to having conversations, and there are a series of, of conversations over time. You know, you figure it out. You go, hey, this day is owned by you. No, it's not owned by me. Okay, cool. Well, are you clear what ownership means in this regard? Yeah, cool. We're clear what ownership means in this regard. Do you know where it should sit? Uh, yes, it should sit over there. Okay, will you come with me so that we can go have a conversation with over there, so that we can ensure that that's the right place. Yep, yep. Agreed. In fact, that is exactly what works well. What works well is when you get into a room where a room is a slack channel, an email thread, uh, or whatever it is, uh, and get the people around the table and just hash it out. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm, I, I want some kind of technology to solve this for me. But these are conversations and agreements. They're, they're agreements. They're negotiations. Um, and yeah, I, no magic from me. Sorry.
0: Collaborative negotiation, I think, is something that a lot of people, they think of negotiation and its combat and all of that. But I think, uh, yeah, Max Schultz talked about in the early days of their Uh, Implementation at Zalando that um, you know he's talked about this in multiple presentations where you know he went to a team and said hey you own this data and it's broken like can can you help me here they said we don't own it this other team does and so he went to team two and they said we don't own it team three does and then team three says we don't own it team one does and so then he goes back to team one he's like. I've, con- you know, or, and then he really did a little bit more work and was like, I've confirmed that you own it. And they're like, we didn't even know we owned this system. It was an orphaned system that was just moved under our ownership. So we, in the, you know, technical sense, own it, but not in the actual sense, because we don't know what this is. So we're sorry we sent you on this goose chase. But like, like, that's where I think a lot of people are in that, that. Mode and and I think uh, what was coming through in a lot of what you said is just like when there is that friction, lean into it and have a conversation. Right? Yeah. Don't ignore the friction. Don't try to just uh, system your way around it. Don't try to uh, lean on on the systems to solve it for you. You've got to have these conversations, but. <laughs> But a lot of people want to automate the conversation as much as possible. That's what they th- think is the toil to automate away instead of <laughs> all the other but, but stuff. That
1: is, but it is literally the value generating thing. It is literally the value generating thing. The other thing that has worked well, that has worked well, is when orphan systems are there, is capacitating teams to, I, I will to take on teams in, in my structure to take on the ownership of the orphan systems figure out whether they need to be owned, uh, rebuilt, uh, or uh, refactored, Uh, because, you know, it's it's like, it's a little bit Marie Kondo, you know, like, you need to figure out whether that data system is sparking joy. And if it is like, you've got to take care of it, it needs ownership. And if nobody else is going to own it, somebody still needs to own it. So I've taken on many, many orphan systems into my organization and built those out and kind of polished them up and made them better. And now they're kind of slowly going back into the community. Um, But yeah, others of them are just getting torn apart and kind of built into scratch, which is a useful outcome too. Removing stuff out of complexity makes it less complex. Easy things have a life cycle, right? Yeah. Like things,
0: it, it, that's the whole thing of data as a product is the product and, you know, the entire product features of the product, all that stuff, they all have a life cycle. So, um, so I did, I did want to wrap up in, in a um, kind of in talking about the flexible, right? You are the director of experimentation, right? That's part, that's one of, one of the uh, aspects of your title. So, how do you think about, there are a lot of people that aren't used to a flexible iterative approach to data, right? There's a lot of organizations that aren't built that way that that haven't done that historically. So if you're talking to them, how do you how do you explain the benefits so that they can kind of pitch that internally? Or how would you go about working with them to to move towards this? Is it, hey, let's let's have the organizational first, or is it, hey, let's let's do some some small things on the sly and show people that this is Uh, possible? You know, it's, it's kind of the uh, ask for permission or ask for forgiveness or, you know, ask for permission or show some value and go, yeah, you know, this is what we should be doing. Or like, how do you think that works well?
1: I mean, if, if I was trying to convince uh, a organization that was running long projects on data to move things, I think the first thing I'd ask is how much budget they've spent doing five-year projects without a good end state, and then asking, you know, how do they do it better? We had to do a huge project many years back, and we came out millions over budgets, like, and literally three, four years uh, late. And I realized then that if I was to do it again, so the big complexity was the divvying up of the complexity of the data itself, It was the ownership, who is what, like where does this data come from, what does it mean, all that stuff. Like it's all interwoven and messy, but if you can pull that apart and do single threads of use cases rather than you know trying to unpick these knots, these big Gordian knots, uh, it's just it's it's a way that you can incrementally add. Okay, cool. Like this use case has got these metrics, this data. If I take the next thread on top of that and it has the same data attributes, hey, I've already got those in. I need, don't need to move those. And I get the incremental of the new ones that I've moved in. Uh, so it, it it is a different way of doing it. It can be slower because you've got the sequencing, which is dependency. But yeah, my predecessor, Lucas Vermeer, just released a really good blog post uh, on the speed of experimentation. Um, and his point was, is that Speed and velocity are different. You can run into a wall really, really, really fast. Um, But what you're trying to do is the right thing. And if you've got a series of flags on the ground that say, hey, we're moving into the right direction, this is working well, or "Uh uh-oh, this is bad, and you find out earlier rather than you find out later, those are good things.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, uh, you know, Hey, we're going through this area, you know, we're in a boat, we're going through this area. We're navigating the rocks. We don't want to find we don't want to go, well the map says there's no rock here, so we're going to go straight for for a mile and then figure out did we hit a bunch of rocks or hey, we're we're seeing that th- we're trying to react we're we're uh kind of reacting as things are going, like e- Kusin on her episode talked about you know being a, a data scientist or in the in that kind of role. And, um, being able to like actually get feedback on things within the same day and how much faster they evolved and how much more value they found because they were able to go, I'm going to test this thing out and I'm going to spend very little time on it to see, is there any there, there? And if there's there, then I'm going to invest more and see if it's legit or if it was an anomaly or a blip or whatever, but that, that you just you're more aligned to take advantage of opportunities because you're actually in the flow of, of, of yeah. what those opportunities are instead of Absolutely. this is my goal. You know, somebody is like, I have the best, you know, uh, whatever in-person thing that they're building in February of 2020. Of right? Like I, I have the best concert going experience of that. Or, or even like you look at like, um, what was it? Tubi or not Tubi. Um, the, the like um, app that was supposed to be like very bite-sized content. And it was like, uh, it was like 10 minute uh, streaming content. So that people, when they were on transit, they could watch it on their phone or something, something like that. And it just came out at the exact wrong time. You know, I don't know if it would have been successful otherwise, but Nobody was writing transit. So like it's this thing that was supposed to be for that exact thing, it, it doesn't matter. And so, like, how can you pivot when you're you're learning? How can you evolve is very difficult. But like how when you're trying to go to that, is it something where you're like we as an organization have to completely realign our um, our ways of working and our kind of overall culture? Or can you start to just create pockets of this, you know, and do you think you need to get budget for an innovation pocket to kind of keep it safe or to, to do that? Or, or what What would you think would be, I mean, is it just so specific to the situation? Or
1: I mean, there, there are a couple of views on this, right? So, I mean, you've got Clay Christensen's view, which is that any, any big innovation needs to be pulled out of an organization. But, but, and, and I, 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 I strongly align with, with with his views on this. But my approach to kind of breaking organizational boundary—this is very much my style—is I think that skunk works are an amazing way to just try stuff out. If you're a small team of people just trying to do something small, uh, you know, you can like you can really move stuff. You can really move needles. Uh, yeah. I I wonder who spends their weekends just like pushing needles around on the floor. It's a really weird metaphor.
0: <laughs> but I think that innovation budget as well, if you can get it, is is helpful, right? To just go like, "Hey, our team is seeing things that that could create value." So give our team the ability to react to it. But you. not every organization is going to be like, oh, you've got free time? Okay, I'm going to add more work, right? Instead of I'm going to give you the space to find the things that are more valuable than what we know
1: about right now. Yeah, but I think this is a leadership decision, right? And I think that good leaders, now, <laughs> I'm very careful, all the leaders listening to the podcast right now, but I think good leaders should be letting people carve out time for stuff which is not on the paved road you know it's it's if if our learning comes from doing what is different um, we've got to we, we've got to take a stance that we have to do things differently from things that we've done in the past you know we've got to learn we've got to keep learning. you don't do that by doing the same thing every day. For sure.
0: So uh, we are coming up on, I know you've got a a hard stop here in a sec. So uh, we talked about a whole heck of a lot of things. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to, or any kind of way you'd want to wrap up any button, any, any through line?
1: There, there is nothing that we talked that we didn't talk about. that is immediately pressing to me. Like I, I had a lot of fun with the conversation. So thank you. It was kind of abstract in places, but it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. So um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's kind of the best place to do that? Anything specific you'd like them following
1: up about? Um, I am mostly active on LinkedIn uh, more than any other social media. Uh, I've also started joining in the uh, data quality camp uh, Slack. So I'm I'm, I'm available there. Um, But yeah, LinkedIn, Guy Taylor. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll
0: drop a link to that in the show notes as well. So people can uh, easily just jump straight to that. But uh, well, Guy, this has been so great. Thank you so much for spending the time here. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Guy Taylor, Director of Data Science and Analytics, as well as the Director of Experimentation at Booking.com. You can find a link to his LinkedIn and a video about deep work in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the data mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now, let's hear that funky outro music.